Graphics, and welcome to DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray, and this is episode 52. There's no big introduction or diatribe this week, we're just going to jump straight in and talk about a couple of accidents. The first one is a cable car in Italy. The second is a space shuttle. How did we get to episode 52 without talking about Columbia? Well, actually, we did mention Columbia, but I've never given you the full story. So we'll give it to you today. Here we go. The space shuttle design was very kludgy when it came to heat management. The first kludge was on the big external fuel tank. This was covered in insulating foam, fairly similar in principle to the polystyrene foam we use all the time as packing material. The reason for the foam was to keep the liquid fuel inside cool. The foam wasn't meant to fall off, but it did, constantly. A lot of the pieces were tiny, but occasionally bigger pieces would pop off as whole units. In particular, there was this one piece called the left bipod foam ramp, which protected one of the knobbly bits of the tank. And that ramp came off at least eight times throughout the life of the shuttle. The second clutch was the thermal protection system, the heat-resistant tiles used to protect the shuttle on re-entry. These were a pain from before the very first shuttle flight. They were expensive, they took a long time to install, and they kept falling off. The shuttle was intended as a quick turnaround vehicle, but checking, replacing, and rechecking the tiles was one of the constant problems that thwarted that ambition. Where these two problems intersected, the falling foam and the thermal protection system, was when the bits of foam were found to be hitting the tiles. Getting hit by a little piece of polyfoam isn't going to hurt you. Getting hit by a Nerf gun at close range does sting a little. Hitting a piece of foam if you're a shuttle blasting into orbit is really going to hurt. The problems were evident from the very first flight. Foam wasn't supposed to fall off at all, let alone hit the orbiter vehicle, but large amounts of falling foam were observed, as was lots of damage on the tiles. Mission STS-7 was the first flight that the left bipod foam ramp, a particularly large piece, came off as a single unit. It would be observed to fall four more times during the shuttle's history. After STS-7, the falling piece was designated an in-flight anomaly. Now, calling something an anomaly required proof that there was no threat to flight safety. The anomaly got closed off, though, on the basis that the foam had been repaired and the tile damage fixed, so there was no ongoing threat. Later, foam loss would start to be referred to not as an anomaly, but as an acceptable risk, or even as an in-family event, which referred to experiences within the normally expected behaviour of the shuttle. So they revisited the issue a number of times, but once you've decided that something is safe, it's very hard to go back and say, you know, actually, we were wrong. We should have worried about it. In fact, those 20 flights since we decided it was safer, pretty scary in hindsight time to do something about it. Or you can just say, well, we decided it was safe back then, so it must be safe now. One of the more notable of these times was the pre-flight briefing for flight STS-113. 
Now, shuttles had a weird numbering system, so 113 came before 107, which was the Columbia accident. So before this flight, a report calculated a less than 1% chance of the foam ramp detaching. Now, how do you get a 1% chance for an event that they later worked out happened at least eight times in about 100 flights? You do it like this. You start by only counting since the last time the ramp came off. That means that no matter how many times it fell off before you started counting, you only ever end up counting two bad events. You assume that every flight where you didn't actually notice whether it came off or not, or where you didn't record whether it came off or not, gets to count as one where everything was fine. You then notice that there are two ramps, the right bipod foam ramp and the left bipod foam ramp. They're different designs, so the right ramp never comes off, but you average between the two of them and say that the chance of any ramp coming off is half the chance of the left ramp coming off. Voila! And just in case someone notices your sleight of hand, you put it all onto a set of PowerPoint slides and just present the conclusions, along with several bullet points talking about how expert the team is that did the analysis. Presenting risk assessment by PowerPoint is one of those murkier practices that comes up surprisingly often in accidents. I don't usually point it out on the podcast, but in this case the accident board actually had a risk communication expert have a look at the slide pack, and they devoted a page of their report to the errors, ambiguities, and downright illogical bullet points. Let's just say it wasn't impressive. So, 1st of February 2003, Columbia took off. The left bipod foam ramp detached and struck the leading edge of the wing. This caused considerable consternation amongst the mission team. They had another shuttle launch coming up soon. Atlantis was due to launch within a month. How were they going to present a credible rationale for the foam ramp being safe for Atlantis? What if someone insisted on calling this event an in-flight anomaly? They were going to have to come up with a stronger argument for why it was safe, and that was going to take some time to work out. Quickly, they put together a team to assess the damage. Not a mission tiger team, which was the standard response to a potential in-flight emergency, but a debris assessment team who could work out whether this counted as a threat to flight safety. Hopefully, they'd decide that it never was a threat to flight safety, so you don't need to justify why it's safe before your next mission. The debris assessment team used a modelling tool called, appropriately enough, Crater. Crater was originally designed to assess how badly ice impacts could damage the orbiter tiles. It was validated for small pieces of ice and foam, and gave results that were a bit conservative for small pieces. It wasn't calibrated for large pieces, or indeed for the leading edges of the wing. The people using the tool weren't very experienced in its use, but they had been trained. They also had a good appreciation of the uncertainty involved and they asked repeatedly for NASA to get an external agency, i.e. the Department of Defence, to take some high-resolution pictures of the shuttle. This request didn't come up through the usual channels, in part because this wasn't a Tiger team and didn't have clear channels, and so the mission team overruled them and decided not to ask for the pictures. 
The debris assessment team did the best they could and plugged their best numbers into Crater, which told them that the shuttle had catastrophic damage. Knowing that Crater tended to give conservative results and knowing that their data was uncertain, they applied engineering judgement and decided that everything was okay and there was no safety of flight issue. I'm being a little bit glib here. It's pretty clear that the team themselves had quite a few doubts about their own work. The mission command didn't want to hear the uncertainty though, just the conclusions. It's an interesting question whether NASA could have saved the shuttle at this stage. The two options were in-flight repair, you know, packing something into the wing, or sending a rescue mission. So the investigation board asked NASA to do a simulated rerun of the decision making, assuming that they'd realised quickly that Columbia could not re-enter the atmosphere. The best guess scenario is that they would have explored both options, and given up on repair as just too risky after a couple of days. They meanwhile would have accelerated preparation of Atlantis, which was already due to launch by the 1st of March. No one really knows if NASA would have launched Atlantis to rescue Columbia. That would have been a risky move in itself. There would have been an accelerated launch schedule, a lot of pressure to keep the countdown going, and doing EVA operations that hadn't been practiced. By not realising the risk though, this decision never had a chance to be made. Columbia tried to land, the wing burned through, and the orbiter disintegrated. It's an accident that really calls into question the role of risk assessment. We tell ourselves that we're trying to measure and calculate risk. We create elaborate models and methods and we collect data to populate them. When it comes down to it though, we use these things to allay fears, to justify safety, and to explain decisions that have already been made. We very, very seldom actually change our minds about what we believe to be safe. But there's no sense crying over every mistake You just keep on trying till you run out of cake And the science gets done and you make a neat plan For the people who are still alive Italian Alps, 3rd of February, 1998 A cable car with 20 occupants was crossing a valley near the Cavalese Ski Resort a United States Marine Corps EA-6B Prowler, a twin turbojet electronic warfare aircraft came screaming past at over 500 miles an hour and under 100 metres altitude. The Prowler saw the cable car and tried to turn, but the right wing of the Prowler cut through the supporting and pulling cables, dropping the cable car straight to the valley floor. Now, 100 metres is very low for an aircraft, but it's pretty high for a fall from an aerial tramway. No one survived. The Prowler took damage to its wing, but it managed to return to Aviano Air Base. There, the four crew members discovered that despite being physically safe, they were not at all out of danger. The local Italian community, already upset by frequent low-flying, demanded their heads on a platter. The US Marine Corps was faced with a difficult problem of post-accident justice. It was pretty sure that the US Defence Forces, as an organisation, were responsible for the accident. 
How they treated the crew of the plane, though, was going to play a big role in whether they were seen to be sincerely taking responsibility. I'll give you a collection of facts so you can form your own impressions about culpability. I'll try to provide a bit of context as well. First fact. The plane was lower than the flight plan said it should be. This appears to have been routine for training flights in the area whenever weather and terrain permitted. The squadron was located in that area specifically for the purpose of low-altitude practice. The pilot, whilst it had some experience in low-altitude flying, had not had a low-level mission for six months, and may have been lower than he thought he was. Second fact. The Italians had already told the Americans about the ski resort and the cable cars, including height restrictions. This information didn't seem to spread easily or clearly amongst the flight crews, though. In fact, in the cockpit of the Prowler, there was an unopened copy of an Italian directive setting limits on low flying. The American crews used US maps instead of Italian maps because they didn't trust that the Italian maps would mark local features properly. The American maps only had cable towers marked, not the cables themselves, which were clearly shown as horizontal obstructions on those supposedly dodgy Italian maps. One of the reasons that the American maps didn't have all the ski resort features marked is that the planes were officially not supposed to be going that low anyway. Third fact. The navigator was running a handheld video camera as they went through the valley. This was fairly common practice, mainly for personal recordings of the scenery. After the accident, the pilot and navigator took the tape from this recorder and burned it. Fourth fact. The flight crew claimed that their instruments didn't give them a low-altitude warning. The instruments had been tested before and after the flight, but testing them isn't the same as using them on a low-altitude flight to see if they work. If there was going to be blame for this accident, there's no question that it fell on the US armed forces in some way or other. Either there were blameworthy individuals, or there was a communal and command responsibility for more widespread bad practices. I think it's fair to say that, whether deserved or not, Militaries around the world have got quite a reputation for blaming bad eggs as a way of denying more collective or systemic problems. The Italian public was certainly willing to encourage this sort of behaviour. They wanted all four members of the crew prosecuted, preferably locally. There are web pages still around today suggesting that the crew should have been handed over to the victims' families for a bit of frontier justice. After all, that's the way you should treat cowboys, right? Except, these weren't cowboys. They were professional pilots with no reputation for showboating. There's a good argument that hanging them out to dry would have been a way for the US to deny responsibility, rather than accept responsibility. It certainly wouldn't have accorded with US notions of justice, where guilt is supposed to be determined by a jury trial, not by how outraged your NATO allies are. The Italians put together an accident report that blamed the flight crew. The US Marines prepared a similar report, which put the accident down to flight crew error, but included extenuating information about the maps, briefings, and placed some responsibility on the squadron command and training officers. Then, 
the pilot and navigator were tried by the US for manslaughter and negligent homicide. To the disgust of the European press, they were acquitted. Then, they were tried for destroying evidence and obstruction of justice because of that burnt personal videotape. The pilot received six months in jail, and both the pilot and navigator were dismissed. They appealed, claiming that the second trial, the one for obstruction of justice, was a done deal to appease the Italian government, and particularly they wanted reinstatement of their post-military benefits. They lost. Now, just in case you think they received a mild punishment, a slap on the wrist, keep in mind the way healthcare works in the US. We're talking about two servicemen where their final operation involved serious damage to their own aircraft and the deaths of 20 civilians. They then sat through two trials where they were repeatedly told that this was entirely their fault, after which they were cut off from the military community and all the practical and emotional support normally available to veterans. And then they lost all their benefits in healthcare. That's not a slap on the wrist. To its credit, the US military took the whole thing as a wake-up call for its operations within NATO ally countries, in particular Italy. They didn't treat it as just a rogue crew, but as a systemic issue of cooperation and information sharing that needed to be fixed. The purpose in prosecuting the flight crew then wasn't to shift blame, but it seemed that no one, either in the Italian press, the European community, or even the US military, was ever going to be happy unless individuals were held to account, as well as the systemic problems. So there seem to be two different things going on here. One of them is a need to work out what the problem is that needs to be fixed. The other is still this need that even if we see the problem as broad, we've got to hold individuals accountable, regardless of whether they are truly responsible for an accident. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. If you're listening close to the time of recording, I'm sorry that it's a little bit late. Thanks to all the Patreon subscribers, in particular premium regulars Paul, Daniel, Hunter, Patrick, and a thanks to new subscriber David. If you'd like to support the show, you can sign up on patreon.com for as little as a dollar an episode. You can also leave a review on iTunes, tell your friends, or just send me a friendly email and tell me you like the show. I had some great feedback from Andy and from William about episode 50. Andy was suggesting that the distinction between system safety and process safety is a bit artificial. I'm inclined to agree, particularly with the way I labelled them in that episode. I think there might be separate schools of thought that say that accidents are caused mostly by poor design, but can be helped along by operational drift, and that say that accidents are caused by poor operations, but can be helped along by poor design. Possibly it's more of a continuum between the two extremes. You could say the same about the different types of behavioural safety on a continuum from individuals to collective cultures. So here's something to try. Make a list of all the things you can blame accidents on. You might want to include on the list individual error, safety culture, operational processes, organisations, design, risk perception, and just the modern world being the way it is. 
give yourself 100 points and try to allocate them between the different causes based on what you think is most significant or what you think safety people should be focusing on. Do your results match up with the schools we talked about in episode 50? That's all from me. We'll have another two cents worth of safety from Ron in the feed next week, and then me again the week after. Till then, keep safe.